Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophecy according to the proportion or faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teaches on teaching, he that exhorts on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that rules with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. So thus far in... Romans chapter 12, I have preached on five of the spiritual gifts that are listed in this chapter. We've talked about prophecy, ministering, which is also referred to as helps, teaching, exhortation, and the gift of giving. The next one mentioned in the list is the gift of ruling. Now, none of the gifts are really expounded on in the text or defined in the text, so We have done some of that in the last couple of weeks. But briefly, by way of review, we saw that prophets were God's inspired spokesmen. Thus saith the Lord was the the word of the prophets. And they served as part of the foundation upon which the early church was established. The, The gift of an inspired prophet has not continued in the church. John the Apostle was the last of the the prophets. But if you mean prophecy in the sense of speaking forth the word of God, then we do that all the time, do we not? Matter of fact, I can think of some Christian writers like A.W. Tozer, who uh, he was not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but a lot of people called him a modern-day prophet. He, He saw things coming and he wrote concerning the changes that would be coming in the church, and other men have done that well. As well, not not again, not in 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 uh, in an exact you know. Here's thus saith the Lord, what will happen? But in a broad sense, so I I have a gift of prophecy in the sense of preaching the word of God to you each week. But but don't call me Prophet Tom, right? Uh, Ministering the next gift was used in a broad sense, I think, for people who who see needs. Uh, see needs in the church, see needs in people's life, and they they joyfully meet those needs. And I like to think that people with the gift of helps or ministering, they they really are the backbone of the church. They they are, you know, the people who get things done, the people who we rely on, and and they they do so willingly. Teaching is the ability to convey biblical truth in a way that people can understand it and apply it. I mentioned to you that every pastor must have the gift of teaching. It's a qualification for the position that he holds. But not every teacher is a pastor. So you teach your children and you might be a lady who leads a Bible study or a man who leads a Bible study or in some other capacity teaching Sunday school. The one who has the gift of teaching has an unusually great desire to study the Word of God. It's, it's not, uh, it is a labor, but they, they enjoy that kind of a labor, kind of like mining in the Word of God. Exhortation is the gift of encouragement uh, or comfort, providing comfort to people uh, in a positive way. In, in a negative way, it's uh, 
comes in the form of a reproof or a rebuke, the word that we call admonishment. But both positively and negatively, exhortation is done for a person's spiritual growth. And if, if ministering is the backbone of the church, then exhortation and the people with the gift of exhortation serve pretty much like the, the heart of the church. They, they're just con- concerned for people. The gift of giving we talked about last week is sharing what you possess joyfully to meet a need in the life of another person inside the church or outside the church. Uh, It might be for a project that the church has or some ministry project, uh, missions, so forth and so on. The Bible says it has to be done with simplicity. And we saw that that word meant single-mindedness. If your eye be single, Jesus says, your whole body be full of light. And that's an idiom meaning that if you are generous, if you are generous, that's what God is looking for. Cheerful givers, people with single-minded giving. Giving, we says these are described as uh, hoplus givers. Hoplus means they have no ulterior motives to their giving. They're just giving to meet the need, giving to the glory of God. And God rebukes diplus givers. That's double-minded people. So who they give may be outwardly to be seen by men. They have an ulterior motive in their giving. But uh, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 12.31 which deals with spiritual gifts in that chapter, chapter more extensively than here in Romans. It says, Covet earnestly the best gifts, yet I show unto you a more excellent way. And the excellent way that he was going to show them was 1 Corinthians 13, right? So even if you have spiritual gifts and you're exercising your spiritual gifts, Paul makes it very clear that they must be done in love. So they must be done in love. And uh, earnestly covet the best gifts. And I think those are the gifts that really build up the body. Uh, There were sensational gifts, tongues and miracles and healings in the early church. Um, Those were not the best gifts. The best gifts are what continued in the church and what we see people using for the glory of God and the building up of the body uh, each, each, really in, in each and every day, especially when the people of God gather. So the last one we talked about was the, give, the, gift, the gift of giving to be done with simplicity. Uh, there's a general rule of giving that's stated in 2 Corinthians 9.8. Uh, each one of you should give just as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. That's the New English translation. So let's look then at the ruling. Romans 12, 8. He that ruleth, or the one who has the gift of ruling, let him exercise it with diligence. I'm going to make some general observations first. You know, the Bible, as I said, doesn't expound on these, doesn't necessarily give us examples of people with the gift of giving. So, we, so we, we look to the word itself and, and what it means and then texts of scripture that utilize that word. So ruling means a person who leads, a superintendent. I'm reading definitions here, short definitions from lexicons. Being in charge, someone who is in charge. In any household, uh, in any church, any company, any organization, someone has to be in charge right? And um, the Greek word here is proistemi, and it means to stand before. 
So I'm standing before you right now. And that was the literal definition of the word. It was used in the classical Greek of military leaders who would stand before the troops and address the troops. It was used of government leaders and different type of lesser officials. And in the, well, the lexicon, it's, it's known as shorthand, it's called BAG. That stands for Bauer, Arnold, and Gingrich. And it's a Greek lexicon of the New Testament in early Christian literature. It's about that thick. It's a big book. Um, and it just says this word, poristemi, means to be head over, to be the head over something. Strong's concordance, to stand before in rank, such as in a high office, to preside, to act as president, or to direct meetings, to maintain, to be over. So all of those are pretty much similar. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 17, don't turn there, but in the LXX, anyone knows what the LXX, that's a, not a new model for a car? Anyone know what the LXX is? That's the Septuagint, right? The Greek, transla- the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrews scriptures. It, ha- it says this in Proverbs 26, 17. It's referring to somebody who, t- who tries to take charge of another person's affairs in a negative way, like a meddler. And it says, like someone, this is from the Jewish, complete Jewish Bible, like someone who grabs a dog by the ears. I love Proverbs, don't you? Because they're just so, some of them are just so easy to get. Like someone who grabs a dog by the ears is a passerby who mixes in a fight, not his own. You never want to do that, right? You never want to interject in other people's affairs when it's not really your business, unless, unless you really absolutely have to. So, we know this, just even from our Sunday school lessons so far. So far in this quarter, we live in an orderly creation, Right? God is a God of order. He says that all things are to be done decently and in order in the church. Uh, Without rules, without rulers, without people who have the ability of organization or good management skills, things would be neglected and they would always take a turn for the worse. We know this, second law of thermodynamics, things left to themselves go up downhill right rather quickly i might add and you know i was thinking of that you know i, I what came to mind was proverbs twenty four thirty. i always like this proverb it says i went by the field of the slothful and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding and lo it was all grown over with thorns and nettles some type of weed i would imagine had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw, and the the idea there is I, I was really gazing on this scene. And we've probably all seen this to some degree. And I and he says, I considered it well, which means I took it to heart. I took it to heart. And then he reiterates, I looked upon it. I looked upon it and received instruction. So what he's telling us is that we can learn from bad examples. We, we can learn from people who have no sense of order in their life, in their family, in their home, and so forth. And this man determined that is not the way that his field 
and his life is going to look like. And that's really important for all of us because we see those bad examples around us in our society. And we have to make the determination that I'm going to be different. You know, I'm going to live a life according to the order or the design that God has revealed in his word. And then it goes on in Proverbs. It says, Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that travails, and thy want, thy desire, as an armed man. In other words, it, it, it's going to be taken from you. You know, whatever wealth you might have or accumulated, if you're lazy, it's going to be gone, just as if somebody held you up with a gun. So that description there was of a lazy man. He wasn't willing to get up in the morning. He wasn't willing to unfold his hands and go to work. Now, I should say that not everyone who is poor is lazy. Let's make that clear. But this man's poverty was the result of his laziness. He, He couldn't manage his own affairs. And that's where everything begins, right? You know, we're going to see a little bit later on. The Bible says if you take a position of leadership in the church, make sure your own house is in order. And your ruling is in your own house because if you can't do that, then you're not fit to manage the household of God. So Stedman, Ray Stedman says, the gift of leadership or ruling is the capacity to plan or execute and to organize it. And he says it's of tremendous value not only in the actual organizing of the church, but in planning conferences, meetings, and setting up special projects, missionary enterprises, and so forth. And thank God, you know, when Jesus ascended onto high, the Bible says he gave gifts to the church. And he gave these gifts so that the church can function and perform uh, according to the design that God has given to it so that it could accomplish the goals that God has for it. And that's why ruling is very important. God established rulers in our homes, in the workplace. And you see some of the scriptures that I've listed there. First uh, Peter 3, 1, I'll give you a couple here. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. So that means to come under the rule of your husband. Be in subjection to your own husband. If anyone obey not the word, They may also, without the word, be won by the the manner of life of the wife, by her meek and gentle spirit, by her submissive spirit, while they behold your chaste, pure manner of life, coupled with fear or reverence toward your husband. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, that whole passage, I'm not going to take the time to read it, 520 through 6-9, but it talks about husbands loving their wives. And, and wives, what, submitting to their husbands as unto the Lord. Peter even mentions that. First uh, Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand, I want you to understand that the head, kephale, ruler of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And then I mentioned, you know, those who hold positions of leadership in the church have to pay attention to their homes. First Timothy tweet. 3.12 says, let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. 1 Peter 2.18, servants be subject to your masters. Well, the, person, the master is the one who has the rule over them. Be subject to your masters with fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the froward. Now I know that we're talking about the gift of ruling as exercised in the church 
rather than an office of ruling, but the one helps us to understand the other. God established rulers in government, right? There's a number of passages of scripture that I listed there. We're going to look at this very soon. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. And Titus 3, 1. So Titus 3, 1 says this. Put them in mind, this is the Christians that he's been preaching to, to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, so whether it's a high official or a lower official, to obey them and to be ready to do every good work. To be subject to means to come under the authority of. They have the headship over you by God's design. And the Bible says, as a matter of fact, in Romans 13, as we'll see, he who resists them resists God himself, resists the ordinance of God. Now, there are limitations to what a government can uh, force you to do or attempt to force you to do, and, but this isn't the time to get into that. We will in Romans 13. But really, practically speaking, for, for our benefit here, you know, we're in a church and God established rulers in the church. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. The same idea of those standing in before you Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. And there's another verse 2 here. Not sure where it is. But it says, Remember them who have the rule over you. Really, they, they stand or they preside over you who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct or their, their manner of life. And if you look down in verse 17, it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch for your souls as those who must give an account. And that's give an account to the Lord. Uh, let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable, not only for them, but, but mainly it would be unprofitable for you. So in, in Hebrews 13 and 7, or in 13, 17, when it says, Obey them who have the rule over you, this is a little different word. It's actually the Greek word hegeomai, or hegomai, which means to lead the way, right? You ever heard the saying, lead, follow, or get out of the way, right? Some people are just natural-born leaders. They're going to take the lead. And, and in Christian places and ministries, it's the people really with the gift of ruling who will do that. They will take the lead, so get out of their way, right? No. Or follow. Uh, but not everyone in leadership in a church has the gift of ruling. But everyone in leadership in the church has the responsibility to provide guidance in the management of the church. The Bible likens the church to a household, just like your household. It happens to be the household of faith. And God has household managers in the church to manage the affairs of the household of faith, the house of God. And one of the benefits of a plurality of elders in a church, there are different forms of church government, uh, congregational rule, which we would typically find in a Baptist church, 
uh, Episcopal rule that you'd find, you know, actually in Episcopal church, Anglican churches. Uh, that's a, a different type of church government. But the one that we're familiar with here is the uh, rule by a plurality of elders. In the Baptist church, it's typically the pastor who, in, for the most part, directs the church. And then he has deacons under him who serve the pastor and serve the people. But I think one of the benefits of a plurality of elders is, is this. Where one may lack in a particular spiritual gift, an, another supplies the needs. So if you look at Titus chapter 1, but again, although they may not have the, the gift of ruling, they have the responsibility to rule and to lead. And, and we see a plurality of elders in, in numerous passages in the scripture. I, I'm, one of the first real big issues in the church that I studied was, well, okay, what, what really form of church government does the Bible teach? And I came to the conclusion that it teaches a plurality of elders. For this reason, verse 5, Titus 1, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking. And again, you see the ideal of setting in order, the ideal oversight, management there. And appoint elders, that's a plurality. Appoint elders in every city as I command you. So the elders would be in the churches in those cities, and I think it would be a plurality of elders within those same churches. First Timothy chapter 3, so you would go backwards in your Bible a little bit. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says, This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a, of a bishop. This is an overseer, again. Someone who takes the oversight, the rule, the leadership of a congregation. He desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. That's if he's the teaching elder or in the church. That's his primary function. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? It's especially true in ministries. But gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. That's desiring money, literally the love of silver. But look at verse 4. One who rules, who presides, who manages his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. And as I mentioned before, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And then it goes on and it says he's not to be a novice or someone who's newly converted because the devil will use that as an opportunity and fill him with pride and then that causes all kind of problems in the church. So I put this down also in your notes. The husband, just as the elders have the, the ruling authority in a church, the oversight of the church, the husband has the leadership of the home. But his wife might be better at managing certain things in the household from an organizational or operational standpoint. You know, a, a wife, she wears many hats, right? She really does. She is responsible for so many things in a home. And, and this is why if a man loses his wife, 
you know, he's really at a, he's at a loss. He doesn't, a lot of, I remember one man, this happened to him, and he said, I just feel like the word, the rug was pulled out in from me. My, my whole, my whole, my whole life has just been pulled apart. So maybe, maybe, maybe a wife, and it's not true of every wife, but maybe she does have the gift of ruling, and she's going to have to check that at times. I mean, she might be a natural administrator, a natural organizer, and, and, and uh, or even in a sense governing, because the Bible talks about administration, which we will get to. Other translations use the word governor, and that's equivalent to ruling in some ways. So they might be one in the same gift. But look in First Timothy chapter 5, verse, well, let's just start in verse 11 for a little bit. Paul says, Refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. In other words, they're not, they're not setting Christ first. Their priorities are elsewhere. And one of them is desire to get married. Having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith, their first love. And besides, they learn to be idle. They're not managing their time well. Wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but also gossips. You know, that, I think idleness breeds a multitude of sins. And busybodies, you know, meddling in other people's affairs. Saying things which they ought not to say. So here's where he gives some practical advice, but this is kind of interesting, this verse, verse 14. Therefore I desire that the younger widows, those who have lost their husbands, I I desire it would be profitable for them, it would be best for them to marry, right? Now that's not always possible, but he says, I desire that they would marry. But then look what he says, as they get married, manage the house, manage the house, giving no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So they are to, to manage the house. And that, this is a, a, a very, very interesting word when it says manage the house. Um, the Greek word is oiko. It's a compound word. Oiko means house. And in the latter part of the word, and you'll instantly recognize this, recognize this is despotes in the Greek. So the wife is the house despot, right? <laughs> the ruler, in a good sense, it means the operational manager. So she manages, she, she prepares the meals. She prepares, you know, the, you know, how much, probably the biggest part of the budget in terms of food because she's going to be doing that. And uh, she sees well to, to the needs of her household, her children, and so forth. She, she takes care of the house so that, that you know, it, it should look presentable. It, it should look orderly. It should function smoothly. So those are household rules. And, and the husband, if he has a wife who's good at that, you know, just you know, honor her. Let her do that because you probably can't do that efficiently. But she doesn't have the overall headship of the home. We saw, we saw uh, verses on that before. I always say the husband, you know, wife can come up with some real good ideas and so forth, but the husband has veto power, right, according to God's design in the marriage. All right, so governing, taking care of the, the household needs. Um, 1 Corinthians twelve twenty eight. we have the scripture here for you. God had set some in the church, first apostles, 
Secondarily, prophets. We talked about prophets. Thirdly, teachers. We talked about teachers. After that, miracles. We didn't talk about miracles because those gifts did not continue in the church. They were temporary. Then gifts of healing. Nobody has the gifts of healing today, although God can heal, right? There are no faith healers. Uh, The gift of helps, that's legitimate. That would be ministry. And then governments, which is really akin to the word ruling. Those who have the gift of ruling have the gift of governments and then diversities of tongues. And governments here means uh, administration. They're they're the household administrators. Kybernesis is the Greek word. It was actually a nautical term. And um, it's related to the word that the scripture uses for the pilot or the shipmaster of a ship who steers the ship. Look in Acts 27, 11. It's one of uh, Paul's voyages on the sea. It wasn't going so well. And he says in verse 10, Men, I perceive this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also our lives. And it says in verse 11, Nevertheless, this centurion was more persuaded by... My translation, King James, has the word helmsman. And it's actually the word that we found in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, where it talks about governors, governments, person with the gift of governments or administration. And in, 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 in other translations have the word master, the master, the ruler of the ship, the one who guides or governs the ship. The helmsman... They were persuaded by the helmsman and owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. So you have that use of it. It's related to the, to the person who steers the ship. James 3, 4 says, Behold also the ships, which they be so great and are driven of fierce winds. That's the way they, they, they worked in that day. Yet they are turned about with a very small helm, a very small rudder, whithersoever the governor desires. So that's the same word there that you would find in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. The governor, the, the, the one who controls something. In the Septuagint again, Kybernesis is found in Proverbs 1, 5 and Proverbs eleven fourteen, and it's translated from a Hebrew term which means wise counsel. So people who have the gift of ruling, the the gift of governments or administration, are people who will give wide, wise counsel. They should be giving wise counsel as far as uh, the management of home, the management of a church, the management of an organization goes. Proverbs 1.5 says, A wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding will, will attain to wise counsels. And people with the gift of ruling, that's what they will seek to do. To to find out how to do something well and then make the application of that to whatever situation they are in and presiding over. And that's why it's so important that the elders of a church be men who are knowledgeable in the word of God. Husbands, you need to be knowledgeable to rule your own house well. 
And you need to be knowledgeable in the Word of God, in the taking in the Word of God. Um, I love the book of Proverbs because it's skill for living. It's skill for life. So you don't have to take, sometimes it doesn't take a lot of you know, exegetical work to find out the meaning of a proverb. And there's some really good books written on Proverbs. There's one by William, I think it's William Arnott. It's an old one. It's so good. I wish I had a copy to give to every dad. You know, because some of these old timers, you know, they're, eh, they, you can learn from old timers, right? I tell you one time I was walking down Ocean Beach with Murray. I don't know, we went there for something. We were walking and there was this gang of, looked like a gang of young Hispanics. And they were, they were coming at me and I'm thinking, oh no, you know, just, just kind of observing all this. And one of them comes out like this and he wants a fist bump. And then they all fist bumped me. And I said, that's good. And he goes, you're an OG. I didn't even know what, didn't know what that meant. I'd never been called an OG before. But it means original gangster. <laughs> and that's what it meant from movies, I guess, culture. But then it came to be applied with anybody we think of as old school. And original. And I, you know, I wanted almost like, you got that right, buddy. You know, I owned this place. (laughs) (laughs) Out. (laughs) No. Uh, But wisdom comes comes through life's experience. The accumulation of experience is good and bad. So I'm going to give you a few little things, a couple things here in a minute. But before, how, how are we to rule the Bible? This is all it says about this. Those who rule are to do it with diligence. Diligence means haste or zeal, with, with eagerness to get it done. And there's an application of this in, in the book of Jude, that little book before Revelation. Jude says in verse 3, there's only one chapter, Beloved, while I was very diligent, see, that's the same word, to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered. So the, the faith was being threatened. He goes on to talk about false teachers and so forth coming into the church, men who were you know, coming in unawares. Uh, but he says, so this is, I was diligent to write this to you. I was writing to you with eagerness, with, with, with zeal. The Greek word is spudo. You get the idea of speed. So people who have the gift of ruling are to do it after they've made their plans and so forth and so on. They're to carry it out, you know, zealously, eagerly. They want to get it done. If they see a mess, they want to clean it up quickly. So I'm, I put a couple things down here. Uh, do we have examples in the Bible of people with the gift of, of ruling? Well, not as we think of because the New Testament the Holy Spirit came and permanently indwelt people and gifted them in different ways. But we do know from the Old Testament with the construction of the temple and so forth that God gifted certain artisans and they were able to do things and the Spirit of God would come upon them. So God, God did you know, guide men and give them certain gifts and abilities even in the Old Testament. Joseph was one of them, right? And, and uh, we see that and how he carried out his plan uh, when knowing that the famine would be coming to, to Egypt and for the preservation of the people of God. 
Another one. Can you think of another one who is a good governor and good? Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a really, I think, a classic book on leadership. He, he uh, faced obstacles. He overcame them. He inspired people to work. He worked alongside them. He set the example. He trusted God. He prayed on and on and on. It's a great book in that regard. Um, so I, I'm going to lift some positives and negatives. I didn't have room to put this down on your, on your notes. Uh, positive traits of leaders. I, I saw a picture one time. I saved it for a long time. And it was of a giraffe. And, and a giraffe can see a person one mile away. They have really big eyes. They can see a person a mile away. And you see them standing up with those big eyes and they're, they're looking down. And underneath it, uh, it the, the little caption underneath this picture that I had was this. A leader is someone who sees further down the road than others. And that's a good quality of leadership. They see further down the road for others than others. Uh, number two, they, they set goals. They're typically goal setters. And they complete them. So a lot of people set goals and then what happens? <laughs> They're just left undone. But people with the gift of uh, ruling or leadership or administration or management, that's very frustrating to, for them to not accomplish the goal that they've set. In Luke 14, 28 says, which of you intending to build a tower doesn't sit down at first, counts the cost, whether he has sufficient funds to finish it. Lest happily after he has laid the foundation, he is not able to finish it. And behold, people begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and he was not able to finish. So people with the gift of ruling, they want to see the job get done. They want to see it completed. Uh, thirdly, uh, they make realistic plans to achieve the goals that they set. They know they can't do all things. They know they, they, they want to do this one thing or two things or whatever, but, but they, they're realists. They set the plans, they have a plan for it, and then they attempt to achieve it. Number four, they, they can manage resources well. Or, or if you're a manager, you have to be a good manager of resources, right? That would include money, people, talent, and time, things like that. Number five, they tend not to waste energy on things that won't help. How many projects have you ever started and then you got diverted to lesser things or other things? And the main thing was left go. The thing you started, you left go and you got diverted into all kinds. You probably don't have the gift of, of leading or ruling in that, in that regard. You're, you're wasting your energy on things when it should have gone to the project that you intended to complete at first. So number six, like I said, they, they see the big picture, not just the parts. A lot of us function on the parts. We don't see the big picture. We, we don't see the completed project. So they keep an eye on, the, on the, the, the big picture. And number seven, they are typically, and I think it's almost required, they are good at motivating and inspiring others. Um, they're not demanding per se. They have the ability to get, to get people to, to participate 
and to, to work uh, for them and together with them on a project. I, I think of the quarterback of a football team. I mean, I mean, think of Tom Brady, whether you like him or not. Right? Uh, he commands respect, right? They say he owns the huddle. When he speaks, everybody listens. And, and the same is true in the clubhouse. And you, you have people like that who are, are leaders. And what do they do? They inspire others to do something that may be even beyond their levels of abilities. You know, they raise the standard for everybody. And that's a good thing. They inspire others. N- number eight, they can take criticism. Uh, they can experience opposition. And, and they will stay on course. Think of Nehemiah, again, Nehemiah 2.10. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, that was the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, this project that Nehemiah had set his heart on because he tied it really to the, the glory of God. The temple was completed, but the walls around the temp- temple were, were a wreck. They were all rubble. They, were, they provided no security. So that was the project that he wanted to complete. But it says here, when, the, when these three individuals heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. And that really struck me, being a leader that God had appointed. He was concerned about the welfare of the children of Israel and the glory of God. That they would have a proper temple and they would have a proper walls around that temple. But the point here is these, three in, in, these two individuals, they were enemies. You know, whenever, whenever God says, I'm going to build, Satan says, I will oppose. So you can expect opposition. And if you have the gift of ruling or leadership, maybe someday you'll be in, a, in that position. Guaranteed it's going to come. Even when a husband attempts to lead the home, there will be opposition to his leadership in the home. That's a given. And number nine, and this is a good trait for anybody to have, they do not quit easily. They do not give up easily. They'll stay the course. Bear Bryant was a football coach for Alabama, a very successful football coach. He said, the first time you quit, it's hard. The second time, it gets easier. The third, third time, you don't even have to think about it. You know? So you have to stick to it. Never, never, never give up, right? So said Winston Churchill. Number 10, they are always thinking of how to improve things. Even if they complete a project, and what can I do to make this work better? That type of a thing. And 11, they are very organized. You know, that's, that's part of it, being a manager. They're very organized. If you ever have somebody in your employment Maybe they, for whatever reason, they got a promotion and they're over you, but they're not organizers. It makes life very frustrating for everybody down underneath them. So, but let me list a couple negatives. And again, I can't give you scriptures for these. Just come from different sources, some from own experiences. Negative possibilities. They can get bogged down in details. In other words, they can be overly organized. Sometimes that'll drive you crazy, right? When there's somebody like that. Uh, number two, they can show favoritism to the detriment of others. And, and they have to watch that very carefully because 
they could identify talent and, and they, they, they could see where that person would be a very asset to getting the project done and they, they could show favoritism to them and kind of disrupt the teamwork. They can overly rely on their own strengths and they can forget that unless God builds the house, we what? We labor in vain who build it. And I think that's one of the weaknesses of the modern church especially big churches, they almost function like corporations. And the pastor is more like the the manager of a corporation than a a shepherd. Um, Relying on plans and, you know, all of these things and not really relying on the Lord. They can over-rely on their own strengths. They could blame others when things don't go right because they're the leader, right? They can't get it wrong. Um, They can take on too much too much number six they can treat people as just another resource to get what they want to accomplish and they're therefore lack gratitude and gratitude is everywhere expressed in the bible we're to be grateful for the people who give little people who give much for everybody number seven they may not be open to positive suggestions they could have the attitude that their way is the best way or their way is the only way. You know, after all, they're the one who's, you know, been successful. Um, number eight, they can become unre- unrealistic with their goals. I'll give you these if you want. They can become unrealistic with their plans or goals, expecting too much of things, people. They can fail to demonstrate humility. Number nine, pride can get in the way. And number ten, they could, sec- they could suffer from a lack of contentedness. Um, that enough is never enough. Achieving this and this and this is never enough. They're never contented. And uh, you have to watch, watch with that. <clears throat> even, even in your own house, you have to, managing the affairs of your own house, you have to be grateful, right, to everybody who's there. You can't show favoritism. You, 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 you have to be contented there. And uh, what does it say? Uh, about contentment in the Bible, what's the short saying? Godliness with contentment is what is great to gain. All right, so thank God for people who have the gift of leadership. Where would we be? You know, I, I could just think of when the day I came here, and I'm not saying I have the gift of of ruling. I have the responsibility to rule, but the very first time I came here, this place was a wreck, and the first thing I did was, you know, in my mind, set down a plan for. Where, where are we going to start? <laughs> I mean, it was overwhelming. You know, I was the only person. Well, where, where am I going to, how am I going to get started with this? I mean, literally, the whole place had to be cleaned out. And, you know, one, one step at a time, right? One, one little project at a time. And I would say to you, if your house is like that guy is in Proverbs, uh, one project at a time, right? Don't become overzealous. Get all these things that you're not going to finish. Start 10 and, and you're not going to finish them. Take them one at a time. Get them done. Cross it off the list. Move on to the next thing. Yeah. Same way with your, with, your, with your management of your, of your money. And this is just a little extra. But you know, you might not be able to take care of everything, right? You might be so far in debt. Or, what do you do? You, you know, you start typically, I think Dave Ramsey says, you know, you're smart with start. You know, try to consolidate your bills. Take care of the lesser ones first, right? Knock them out of the way, you know, 
and then and then just keep working on things. And eventually the goal is to work yourself completely out of debt, right? Completely out of debt. You know, to own your home, own your car. And listen, today, in the world in which we live, with the prices that they are, in inflation, I told the guys the other night, we had a little meeting about fathers. I said, I heard a statistic the other day that for children born today, 2022, to raise them to the age of 18 will cost you $300,000. One child with the inflationary rate. Good luck. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. It's not about luck. It's good management, right? And you know what? And that's not to scare anybody. Statistics are only statistics, and God takes care of, takes care of things. But, but we, you know, things are tough. So um, use your money wisely. 